Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open it to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We have so many. We get to hear from you, um, and we're grateful that you join us via our live stream. And we pray that you feel very much a part of our church family. I want to also welcome Reach Church DeSoto. Uh, Reach Church does its discipleship up here at the church on Wednesday nights, and I got to sit in on their class this week. And I'm telling you, Pastor Ryan does a remarkable job. And uh, it was so much fun to see the fellowship and the community that God is creating there at Reach Church DeSoto. So Reach Church, we're with you, and we're grateful for you. And also the venue service down the hall. I want to encourage you as well, um, as we near Easter, to join up with us in praying for at least one person in your life that doesn't know Christ. And our staff team has done a remarkable job of putting together some wonderful devotionals. I've been watching them each day. I get a text message with that devotional in it, and I watch it and view it in the morning, and I love it. And, and I want to encourage you, go to our website. You can find that page there. You can register to receive those devotionals every day. You can text UNLEASH to 89449, and that will also register. And tell us who you're praying for. We want to pray with you. You don't have to give us their full name, but give us uh, maybe their first name and last initial, and it'll just help us to know how to pray for you. And our staff team is reaching out to many of you to see how we can help you and how we can pray for you. So you might be hearing from one of our pastoral team. But the devotionals, I'm astounded at the staff that I get to work with. Um, these men are just remarkable. Uh, the devotionals from Pastor Kent and Pastor Steve Barnes and Pastor David McLaughlin and Pastor Jim and Pastor David Shaw, um, even Pastor Bill. That guy's a preacher. Um, I was thinking we got to get him back in the pulpit again pretty soon. Not today. Sit down. <laughs> Not yet. But uh, one of these days we'll get him back. But aren't you grateful for a staff that loves the Word of God and rightly handles it? And <laughs> so you, you jump on there and you register. Well, uh, Revelation 16, as we come to the end of uh, the tribulation next week in 17 and 18, it kind of looks retrospectively at the fall of Babylon. So we'll be two weeks watch, looking back at that. But we're coming to the, to the end on uh, these seven bowls uh, of wrath. And then in chapter 19, we get to the hallelujah chorus. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get there. Um, these topics, these chapters, the wrath of God, this is weighty stuff. There's a reminder to me that as we look at the wrath of God, it's a reminder of the mercy of God. So often we use the words grace and mercy almost interchangeably. Uh, they're, they're very much different. They go hand in hand, but they're very much different. The focus of grace is our accomplished salvation in Christ. The focus of mercy is the removal of our condemnation through Christ. The focus of grace is getting heaven. The focus of mercy is missing hell. Grace is shown to the undeserving, while mercy is compassion to the miserable. Grace is God's solution to man's sin, while mercy removes the pain. Grace forgives, while mercy restores, and grace gives us what we don't deserve, while mercy withholds the judgment that all of us rightly earned. And because grace focuses on what we get in heaven, or in salvation, meaning heaven, and mercy focuses more on what we miss in hell, it only makes sense that grace gets most of the publicity in the New Testament. 
In fact, there are over 125 references to grace in the New Testament and only 27 references to mercy. Um, just to give you a foretaste of where we're headed, um, in the fall we're going to go to First and Second Samuel when we finish Revelation. Uh, we always do, we try to do New Testament, and then we go Old Testament. You've got to get a balanced diet of God's Word. But this summer, uh, I thought, we need, to, we need a little interlude after the wrath of God. And uh, so we're going to just look at a series I'm titling The Glorious Gospel of Christ. And this summer, we're just going to go to some of those good old gospel texts. And we're just going to bask in the glory of the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. But we've also got to look at God's judgment. We have to be reminded. In fact, I would say it this way. Only until we fully comprehend where we could have gone and what the punishment is that we rightly deserved, apart from faith in Christ, can we fully appreciate what we got and where we're headed in Christ? So we need to be reminded of what we deserve. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we commit to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to give you the full counsel of God's word. We don't want to pull punches we want to be very clear with you about where this world and where this earth is headed. So with that in mind, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage that is weighty. As we look at the finality of your wrath poured out on a world that's rejected you, God, I pray that if there's anybody watching online or here in person that doesn't know you, that today you would peel back the blinders and let them see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who died in their place. And God, for those of us that do know you, may we today have a greater appreciation for the mercy that you've extended to us in Jesus Christ that withholds from us the punishment that we rightly deserve. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me in verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So we've seen this throughout Revelation that God has been exceedingly patient, but now God speaks. His voice thunders from heaven. This is the, the final outpouring of God's judgment on the earth. As we look at these bowls, you're going to see some similarities between these bowls of judgment and the plagues that were poured out on Egypt in the Exodus. You'll also see some similarities between these bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments that we looked at earlier in Revelation. But make no mistake about it, these are different this is a chronological moving forward in the wrath of God. There's an aspect of these bowls of judgment that are greater in scope. They're greater in intensity than anything we've seen before. And there are certain aspects of them that are completely new. They are the rapid fire death blows at the very end of the tribulation that precede the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 2. It says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his image. So this first bowl brings about these incurable oozing boils, and many speculate probably something similar to leprosy. A boil or a sore on the skin is an external indicator of an inward corruption, that something's not right internally, and then it exposes itself in an external way. You remember Jesus said of the scribes and the Pharisees, you look good on the outside, but you're whitewashed tubes. On the outside you look good, but inwardly you're just nothing but a bunch of dead men's bones and filled with all kinds of uncleanness. 
And Christ was saying there's an incongruity between who you are internally and your true spiritual condition and your physical external appearance. But when we get to this point in the tribulation, there will no longer be an incongruity. Who you are spiritually, internally, will be exposed in an external way. And John is clear here that this this plague falls only on those who have taken the mark of the beast and worship the beast. You know, so often in our world today, religion is a nominal thing. It's not that important. This is not always the first thing that jumps up in a conversation with somebody. But when it gets to this point in the tribulation, religion is everything. In fact, everybody will declare allegiance either to Antichrist or to Christ. I believe with all my heart that as we get closer and closer to the end, that there will be no more atheism. In fact, Eric McTaxis has a book out right now called Is Atheism Dead? I would recommend it. But as we get closer to the end, there's going to be no doubt that there is a God. The question will be, will you worship him or will you reject him? It's so interesting to me that so many times man may act like an atheist, But as I like to say, he reacts like a Baptist. Um, You may act like an atheist until some great tragedy. You may act like an atheist until a drunk driver kills your your wife. And then as I like to say, you, you become a Calvinist and you want judgment. Everybody wants to get rid of the death penalty until it's your child that gets murdered. Secularism and atheism sound really great in a bar and in a freshman philosophy class. But once you get out in the real world, everyone wants justice. They want law and order. So as we get here, atheism is dead. In fact, as we'll see as these bold judgments are poured out on the earth, there is a recognition on the part of the world that these bowls of judgments come from God. In fact, it'll say over and over again, they blaspheme God. In order to blaspheme God, you have to believe there is a God. So atheism at this point is dead. And then look at verses three through four. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. In the second and third bowls of judgment, all the water is contaminated. 71% of the earth's surface is covered in water. And at this point, it's all contaminated. Not like previously in the trumpets where just a third of the water. Now it's all contaminated and everything in the sea dies. The stench would be overwhelming. Weather patterns would immediately change. The effects of this plague would be devastating. It's why uh, I believe with all my heart that these, these bold judgments can't last any more than, than maybe a, a few weeks. Because as you move forward, the earth just becomes increasingly uninhabitable. Then look at verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. So this angel makes a declaration that this judgment is a manifestation of God's righteous character. That man is getting what he rightly and justly deserves. God has been gracious. God has been kind. Every day, God gives us air to breathe. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the sun to shine and plants to grow, food to eat, fresh water to drink. He's delayed his wrath. These are what we call the common grace of God upon all men. But how has man in general responded? They do not worship him. 
They reject him. They curse him. They take his name in vain. They mar his image. They tear into their food like a pack of wolves without ever pausing to recognize the one from whom all good things come. As I like to say, they want the goodies, but they don't want to worship the one who gave them to them. Well, here at the end, guess what God does? He takes the goodies away. He takes it all away. And God's just judgment is righteous. It's holy. And man has no leg to stand on. He's got no argument to make because he's guilty. Just as David said in Psalm 51 against you and you only. Have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God's judgment issues forth from his righteous character. And then look at verse 6. Uh, For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. God said in Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. It was the establishment of government. The government was originally designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to punish the evildoer. Wouldn't it be great if they just went back to that? Um, But that was the original purpose. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. These people have viciously persecuted and killed tribulation saints. And so it's fitting that those who have shed innocent blood here, they're given blood to drink. And the most haunting part of that verse is that phrase, and they deserved it. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, oftentimes in our life, somebody does us wrong, and we want immediate vengeance, don't we? We, we say, God, where are you at? Bring just somebody cut you off in traffic. You're like me. You're like, God, just strike them with a lightning bolt right there. Just take them out. But isn't it, that's not how God works, is it? God does not immediately recompense evil, and he doesn't always immediately recompense good. But here's the deal. God says to us, vengeance is my work, not yours. God says, vengeance looks good on me. It doesn't look good on you. Only God can bring about vengeance and retain every bit of his holy and righteous character. And when we cry out, God, bring your vengeance, listen to me, when God finally does bring his vengeance, it will be overwhelming. So here God pours out his vengeance. Look at, look at verse seven. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. Uh, when we studied the fifth seal, the souls of the tribulation saints who were martyred for their faith, were pictured under the altar, crying out for God's judgment to come. They were crying out, how long? God, how long are you going to let this go on? Well, here they cry out because God has heard their voice and his judgment has come. And they affirm the righteous character of his judgment. Look at verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to to, to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. You know, God in his gracious sovereignty has placed the sun at just the right distance, distance from the earth so that it gives us light and warmth, but it doesn't overwhelm us. With this fourth plague, the intensity of the sun is increased to such an extent that it scorches men. The sun's intense heat burns men as if to give them a foretaste of the coming lake of fire. 
And notice the response of men. They blaspheme God. There's no denial of God here. No atheism at this moment. And yet they blaspheme and they curse him. They will not repent. You know what I think their argument is? I think their argument is something like this. That this is not fair. You ever heard that before? This is not fair. This is too extreme a judgment for the sin. And that's what a lot of people say. Boy, that sounds awfully extreme. What have they actually done? I'll tell you what they've done. They sinned against the holy God. When a person makes that argument that this sounds too extreme, they fail to recognize the greatness of God's glory and they fail to recognize the depth of their own sin. They make themselves too high and they bring God too low. Listen to me. When you catch a glimpse of the glory and the holiness of God, you don't argue. You don't curse him. You shut your mouth and you pray for grace. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a dead man. I can't stand in the presence of this holy, glorious God. Well, look with me. Um, By the way, too, just a side note here on that. Salvation is completely a work of God. Until a person gets a glimpse of the glory of God, they will never understand the full weight of their sin. And if they don't understand the full weight of their sin, they'll never turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And you can't argue a person into salvation. You can't debate a person into salvation. Salvation occurs when by God's grace, God peels back the blinders so that you finally see his glory. You catch a glimpse of his glory. You see the depth of your own sin and you see the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. And when you know how glorious he is, then you'll know how sinful you are and then you'll run to Jesus because you know he's your only hope of salvation. And it doesn't occur because you earned it, but because God acted in your life, which is why we pray, amen, We share the gospel, we share the truth, but we know that unless God moves by his spirit, nobody's gonna be saved, which is why for these 40 days, we're praying for that one lost soul. We're pleading with God to move in the hearts of people so that they come to faith in Christ. Look at verse 10. Then the the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongue because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So with this fifth plague, God turns out the lights on Satan's kingdom and the whole earth goes dark. You you ever been in a place that was totally dark, just totally, completely dark? I mean, it's it's scary, it's frightening, it's suffocating. Oftentimes in scripture, when, 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 when a place goes dark, it's a picture of God removing his presence. In fact, as we'll study on Good Friday uh, at noon, on that Good Friday when Christ hung on the cross, the sun goes dark as a picture of God's judgment being poured out on Christ. God who can't look upon sin turns his face away and Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a picture of the judgment of God being poured out on Christ, not for his sin, but for ours. Well, here at the end, God turns out the light as a picture of his judgment upon fallen man. It's almost as if here at the very end of the tribulation, God says, you don't want me? Then let me turn out the lights and I'll give you a taste of what it feels like to have nothing of me. There's so many people, I don't, I don't want God in my life. 
Well, if that's truly your heart, then one day you'll know what it feels like to have everything of God taken away from you. A place where there's nothing of God to ever bother you again. No light, no love, no fellowship. Just the awareness of yourself and your sin in a place of darkness and fire. And here they get a taste. You know what they do? They gnaw at their tongues. And yet they would not repent. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river in Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. The Euphrates River is in modern day Turkey and Iraq. It creates a military barrier between the east and the west. Um, if you study it today, if you look it up, uh, the, the Euphrates River is actually at its lowest depth ever. But the idea here is with the fourth plague or the fourth bowl of judgment, the sun it's increased in its intensity, and with the sun's scorching heat, the, the snow-capped mountains that feed in the Euphrates River, Mount Ararat, and all those mountains, those snow-capped mountains will be completely melted, and it will create a flow of water in the Euphrates River that will destroy everything in its path, including any bridge or man-made bridge that would connect the east is from the west. And so... What does God have to do? He sends this plague to dry up the Euphrates River and he's creating a path for the kings of the east and their armies to come to the valley of Armageddon. And make no mistake about it, this is not an act of kindness on the part of God. This is an act of judgment. It's a trap. He's pulling them into a place where he'll pull out his judgment when Christ returns in the valley of Armageddon. And so, look with me. Verse 13 and 14, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for their spirits are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So here we see that unholy trinity. We have uh, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Here we see that unholy trinity again with the dragon who is Satan, the beast which is Antichrist, the false prophet that mimics the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they send forth these demonic spirits. It says like frogs, frogs are unclean. I think it's just depicting for us the vile, nasty nature of these demonic beings that go forth. And their job is to influence the kings of the earth to come and together in that valley of Armageddon. Now the point is, why are we told this? Well, God wants us to understand clearly that this is not just some, as these kings maneuver to that valley of Armageddon, it's not just some political maneuver, it's not some military movement. No, this is the forces of Satan and darkness moving against God and his son Jesus. And God is sovereign over every aspect of it. And then we see in verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he'll not walk around naked and men will see his shame. Kind of have a break in the narrative here. And, and, and John gives us this reminder that Christ is coming back and he'll come like a thief. We've seen this before in Matthew 24. And thieves don't normally send you a text message or an email where they're gonna rob you. No, their greatest advantage is surprise. They come when you least expect it. So John says, stay awake, stay alert, keep watching. You know, the last thing I do before I go to bed at night, I check every door to make sure every door is locked. I'm not planning to get robbed, but it might happen. So I make the effort to do that every night. And I'm sure that most of you do something very similar. We do that. We go through that trouble to protect ourselves from an uncertain possibility to protect a bunch of earthly stuff. How much more 
Should we prepare for the certain return of Christ to protect our eternal souls? So the picture here is you want to make it through. You want to be happy and blessed on the day of Christ. Stay alert. Keep your clothes on. You'll not walk around uh, naked and men see your shame. In other words, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Walk in faithfulness. Walk in purity so that when Christ returns, you would not be found in shame. In verse 16, they, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's the plain of Megiddo. It's a massive plain. Over 200 battles have been fought on that plain. It's the battlefield of all battlefields. And while these un, unclean spirits may have driven these kings and these armies to this place, ultimately, it's the Lord that has done the ordering. It's the Lord that's done the planning. And they're all gathered here according to his perfect sovereign plan. Good reminder for us today. As we look at the events occurring in our world, we must always remember that God is sovereign over every aspect of history. And it's moving forward to its purposed end that God has planned for his glory. Verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. It's done. We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? It is finished on the cross, on Calvary, to tell us thy, it's completed, a completed perfect action that Christ died once for all, never to be repeated again. The work for your salvation and mine is finished. There's no more work to do. The price has been paid in full. The distance between God and man has been reconciled. And all that remains for a person to do is to place their faith in Christ. Not because man is lazy, but because God is thorough and Christ has fulfilled all righteousness, died in our place, paid the price for our redemption, and all that remains for us to do is to believe in Jesus Christ and rest in the salvation that he has accomplished. Is that not good news today? It is finished on Calvary. Those are words of great comfort, words of salvation. Here in the Valley of Armageddon, It is done. It's a different word in the Greek, but similar phrase. But here, these are not words of comfort and salvation. They're words of judgment and condemnation. At Calvary, it is finished means there's no more work to do for your salvation. Trust in Christ. Here, it is done means there's no more opportunity for salvation. That the time for God's grace and salvation is over. Listen to me. The call to be saved is not an open-ended invitation. That one day God will say, it is done. You remember Noah and his family got on board the ark with the animals and what did God do? God shut the door. And it was God saying, it's done. Here God says it's done, the opportunity's over. Look at verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. Where else do we see lightning and thunder and earthquakes? Where else do we see? We see it at Sinai, don't we, at the giving of the law. The point there, the point here is God is holy. You don't cross God and get away with it. He's far more holy and far more powerful than we can imagine. And so there's this great earthquake, and this earthquake brings about a great renovation of the earth. Look at verse 19. The great city that was split into three three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce fierce wrath. The great city, I take that to be Jerusalem. 
The great city of Jerusalem is reconfigured to prepare it for the critical role, the central role it will play in the midst of the millennial kingdom that we'll look at later. And the nations fall. God brings them down. And Babylon, this, this city that, that has its origin at the Tower of Babel where man replaces God. And we'll see its destruction in 17 and 18. It gets a special dose of the wrath of God. And then in verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Japan is gone. Hawaii Islands are gone. Australia is gone. New Zealand is gone. The mountains gone. You ever make your bed? Faith and I, we make our bed in the morning and uh, you, you, you got some wrinkles in the middle. And what do you do? You take the sheet and go, Phew! and there. You know what God does here? Phew! And the mountains come down. The islands are gone. You know what I believe? The only high place left will be what? Jerusalem, the great city of God. And then in verse 21, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So those who remained faced the torment of 100 pound hailstones. And we've seen recent days the devastation that a, that a bomb can do. In real time, we've seen its devastation. Imagine a 100-pound hailstone at terminal velocity striking the earth. You're talking about devastation, the likes of which we have never seen before. God is going to reduce this earth to a parking lot, preparing the way, pulling out the red carpet for his son Jesus and his return. And in light of all of this destruction, the demonstration of God's power, man remains what? Hardened in his sin, defiant against God, they blaspheme God. Folks, this is heavy stuff. I've been in it all week. Why is this here? This is here so that God could tell us very plainly, this is where the earth is headed. That history is not circular. It's not just one thing after another. It's not just winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, over and over again. No, history has an in the beginning. And history is going somewhere. You have the patriarchs, you have the law, you've got grace, you've got kingdom, you've got return. And they shall reign forever and ever. And history is to the glory of God. Everything will be to God's glory. God will be glorified in his salvation towards those who have trusted his son Jesus and he will be glorified in his judgment on those who have rejected his son. In other words, you can glorify God forever in heaven or you will glorify God forever in hell. But listen to me today. God will be glorified for all eternity. This is where the earth is headed and no one can stop it. No one, no politician, no person, no government, no power. No one can stop it. You can go zero emissions, folks. You can go totally green. And I'm not being flippant. We ought to be good stewards. But listen to me. If you're frustrated where the world's at, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is where it is heading. And there's only one means of escape and his name is Jesus Christ and you turn to him in repentance and faith that you recognize that God peels back the blinders Paul said in Corinthians Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glorious face of Christ 
That salvation is not something you think your way into. It's not something you earn your way into. You're not a Christian because you were smarter than everybody else and you figured it out. No, you're a Christian because one day God moved in your heart. You didn't set out to be saved. God moved in your heart. He peeled back the blinders. He showed you the depth of your sin. He showed the glory of himself. And he showed you the love of God demonstrated on the cross. And you're drawn to him like a moth to a flame. You cannot help but give your life completely to Christ. And you know the good news of this? When you trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The good news of faith in Jesus Christ today is that I know that I will never face any form of the wrath of God because I have believed in Jesus Christ. Folks, that's good news. That's the mercy of God. This is where the earth is headed. Where will you be? Do you have the certainty that through faith in Christ there's no condemnation? That when this day comes you will be safe and secure with Christ when his righteous judgment falls? This is an area of your life where you can't afford to be uncertain. You ask a person some days, you know... You know, you're going to heaven. Well, I hope so. Listen to me. Jesus didn't come so that you could be uncertain about your salvation. He came, lived, and died and rose so that today you could know that you know that you know that through faith in Christ you'll be with him, not because you're good, but because Christ in whom you've believed is perfect. So, do we have a hymn today? Pastor Bill, don't come here. Go over there. <laughs> Daniel Whittle served in the Civil War and he was wounded. Wounded in his sword hand, had his arm amputated and became a POW. And in that POW camp, he started reading a New Testament that his mother had given him before he went off to the war. Day after day, he would sit alone with Scripture and just read. One morning, a nurse awoke him and said, Sir, I need you to come pray with a young man who's dying. He wants somebody to pray with him. And Daniel Whittle said, I'm not your man. I'm, I'm a wicked man. And she said, but I've seen you reading your Bible. He needs somebody to pray with him. You come. So Daniel Whittle went to the side of this young man who was dying. He said he grasped his hand and got on his knees. And right there, the first thing he did was he prayed and asked Christ to forgive him of his sins. To be his Lord and his Savior. And then he said, I prayed with all my heart for this young man. I prayed not for his physical salvation. I prayed that he would know the pardon like I had just come to know. The pardon of Christ through trusting in his shed blood. He would know new, new, new birth. He would know that he would be with Christ when he closes his eyes. He says as he arose, after his prayer he looked and the young man had passed. But he said there was such a look of peace on that young man's face. And he said, I knew in that moment, without a doubt, that God 
had led both me and that young man to this horrific moment to bring us to a place of trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Daniel Whittle would later go on to become an evangelist, work with D.L. Moody. He wrote over 200 hymns. But his most famous hymn talks about our assurance of salvation. See, Daniel Whittle, there was a lot he didn't know. Much of salvation that he didn't understand, but he knew in whom he had believed. And he knew that he was faithful to keep that which he had committed unto him against that day. Do y'all know that hymn? We're going to sing it. Would you stand with me? I know not why God won me he had Why unworthy Christ in But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I So much that we don't understand, so much we can't grasp about who you are and what you've done, but we know whom we have believed. What a love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, that we should have the certainty through faith in Christ that despite all of our sin through faith in Jesus, we will be with you forever in heaven. God, I pray right now for the person that doesn't know you, watching online, 
in room in this person at Reach Church DeSoto, down the hall in the venue, God, move in their heart to show them the wondrous love of Christ. May they come to know your salvation today. For those of us that do know you, God, let us rejoice as we look to your wrath and your judgment. We're overwhelmed that sinners like us would know your salvation. May we live in light of your mercy and your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.